open with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus in chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of what is going on. We have Moses shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. He's in a wilderness called Horeb, though you probably know it better as Sinai. He is 80 years old. He's married. He has children. He may even be a grandfather. And he's shepherding these sheep when all of a sudden God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And he calls him to a great task. God is speaking to Moses in order to send him to Egypt. He is to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And Moses is to lead God's people, the Israelites, out of their slavery in Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. Now, the first response of Moses to this call from God was to say, Who am I to do this? Moses is not some great leader or orator in his own mind. He is a shepherd who has not lived in Egypt for 40 years. But God has said to Moses, I will be with you. God has promised Moses that he will take care of him and he will work through him to deliver Israel. But Moses is not satisfied. And so for a second time, Moses protests the call of God. He comes back at God with a question. Moses has not yet said, I will go. Rather, he's pushing back against God. And so let's pick up what he says, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, Mount Hermon, names are important. I just refer to you as Mount Hermon. That that name has significance, right? Uh, Mount Hermon, this is the mountain uh, in the promised land through which uh, the, the snow that is upon that mountain becomes the rain and the dew that falls upon the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the people of, of Jerusalem are able to live because of Mount Hermon. And Psalm 133 talks about Mount Hermon in the context of unity and the blessing of God. And we call ourselves Mount Hermon because we want to be a church blessed by God with unity around the most important things in the world. Uh, 
Names are significant. We think about them when um, we're naming our children. Crystal's sister is is about to have a baby, and we don't know yet whether it's a a boy or a girl. And on the way home from uh, the Kentucky meeting yesterday, we were joking about different names for babies. And their last name is Barber. And I suggested if it's a girl, they should name her Barbara Barber, uh, just because that would be be fun to say. And uh, so we were talking about names and, and significance of names. And um, Jonathan, gift from God, Benjamin, son of my right hand, right? We, name, names matter. Names particularly matter when they are given by God himself. God always names things in accordance with what they are. Uh, when God reveals to us a name that he has chosen for himself, the name by which he is to be known, that's significant. Remember the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so what we're dealing with in this passage is the very name of God. And God's name certainly says something about who he is. We're told to sing praises Not just to God, but to God's name. We're told that God's name is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Psalm 20, verse 1. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But we trust in what? In the name of the Lord, our God. What we find in the Scriptures is that the name of God stands for God Himself. To trust in God's name is to trust in God Himself, in all that He is. To love God's name is to love God. To sing praises to God's name is to sing praises to all that God is. And now Moses is going to come back to Egypt after 40 years. And he's going to stand in front of his kinsmen, the people of Israel. And he's going to say, our God has spoken to me. And they're going to want to know his name. Who is this God that has spoken to you, Moses? Who is this God that is claiming he is going to set us free? You're saying it's the God of our fathers. The God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. What's his name? Uh, The name of God had likely been all but lost among the people of Israel. Egypt had lots of gods. Egypt's gods had many different names. The Israelites have only one God. And at this point in history, we don't think they even remembered his name. Uh, How can they know that the God that Moses was speaking to was their God. The God committed to them. They want some kind of evidence. Moses, if it was our God that spoke to you, what is His name? And so God reveals His name to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is the great I am. And that is His name. We say it is Yahweh, or Jehovah. 
What do we learn from this name? I want to make three points this morning about the name of God. First, I want us to see that God's name is a testimony to His nature. Second, I want us to see that God's name is a rebuke to all idolatry. And then third, I want us to see that God's name is a statement about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's God. And so we're going to take those one at a time, and I hope you'll see why this name is so wonderful. So number one, God's name is a testimony to His nature. God's name tells us about Him. It fits Him. Some people have names that don't fit them, right? You can meet a man named Harry who's not Harry, right? So some people's names don't fit them. God's name fits Him. What do we learn about God's name? I am who I am. Well, the first and most obvious answer is that we learn that God exists. His name is I am. I am. I I exist. And that single fact alone, that God exists, has incredible consequences. If God does not exist, there is no absolute right and wrong. If God does not exist, there is no higher intelligence behind all that's happening in the world. Chance is the ruler of this universe. If there is no God, you do not have to give an account for how you have lived on this earth. If there is no God, there is no heaven. If there is no God, there is no hell. If there is no God, there are no spiritual beings. Without God, we are living in a purely material world with no eternal significance, no eternal meaning or purpose. If there is no God, your life and my life have no lasting value. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if God does exist, then there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. There is a higher intelligence behind everything that's happening in this world, including hurricanes in Bermuda and Ebola in West Africa and in Texas. Chance does not rule the universe if there is a God. The wisdom of God rules the universe. If there is a God, then surely we will stand before Him and give an account for the way we've lived at the end of all things. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There are spiritual beings. This is not just a purely material world. This is a spiritual world. It's a world with eternal significance. And your life matters. And my life matters. If there's a God. And the name of God is I Am. He does indeed exist. And that changes everything. But number two, God's name tells us that He is uncreated. He is uncreated. He has always existed. God's name is not, I am who someone else made me to be. His name is, I am who I am. In other words, God did not spring from someone else or something else. God simply is. He is outside of time. 
He has no beginning. And He has no end. He simply is. Or to put it better, whether you are looking inside of time or whether you are looking outside of time, God always is. And this is very important. You and I were created by God. And therefore, we owe Him gratitude and honor for having made us. There are creator rights that God has over us. He is the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to do with us whatever He wills. But God is no one's clay. There is no potter that made God. God owes no one else gratitude or honor. He owes no one anything. He is the one being in the entire universe who is completely independent, under no obligation to anyone higher than Himself. Because there is no one higher than Himself. He is the uncreated being. He is the I Am. Number three, God's name tells us that God is self-subsistent. Self-subsistent. You know what subsistence is. You may have heard people talk about subsistence farming. Subsistence farming is where you're raising just enough food for your own family to live. Subsistence means having what you need to survive. And you and I are dependent beings. We need things to survive. We need food or we die. We need oxygen or we die. We need the heat of the sun or we die. We need protection from the elements, food and clothing, or we will die. And it's God who keeps our hearts beating. It's God who keeps our brains waving. It's God who keeps our bodies functioning. It's God who provides for us what we need. We are not self-subsistent. We depend on many things outside of ourselves to survive. And ultimately, we depend on God to survive. But God does not depend on anything outside of Himself for life. Or existence. God never has to eat dinner. God never needs water or oxygen. How is God's life sustained? God's life is sustained in Himself. I am who I am. There has never been a moment in the eternal existence of God, in which God could say, I need... God has never needed anything. He is all that He needs in and of Himself. Uh, We remember the Apostle Paul preaching to the Athenians in that great structure called the Areopagus. And Paul looked at those Greeks... And he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. God is self-subsistent. He depends upon nothing. Number four, I believe. God's name also teaches us that he is unchanging. He is unchanging. He does not change. He's not one kind of God today and another kind of God tomorrow. I am who I am is his name. God is never different than he is. Never different than he has always been. Never different than he always will be. As we love to sing, there is no shadow of turning in Him. Uh, We live in a day in which many people are falling back into a very ancient heresy called Marcionism. Everybody say Marcionism. Very good. Marcionism is the belief that the God of the Bible is actually two different gods. Or at least one God who has radically changed. Basically, they say the God of the Old Testament was one kind of God, and the God of the New Testament is a totally different kind of God. But friends, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God, and He has not changed. People act as if the God of the Old Testament was always full of wrath and fury, and the God of the New Testament is always full of love and mercy. But friends, read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. How often in the Old Testament do we see God acting in love and compassion and tenderness and in kindness? Over and over again in the Old Testament, we read that God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're over in the New Testament. We do find a God who is loving and merciful, but we also find a God who is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament. That's Hebrews. We read about a Christ who is going to return to bring judgment on this earth. Revelation is in the New Testament. Friends, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, you can always count on Him. Great is His faithfulness. He will never change His mind about anything He has ever spoken to you. He will not be your father one day and not your father the next. He is faithful. He is unchanging. Fifth, we learn from God's name that He is the absolute being from which all else springs. He is the absolute being from which all else springs. He is the first cause. He is the source of all other life and all other being. What does science tell us? What does observation tell us? What does common sense tell us? Life comes from life. Living beings do not come from rocks. Living beings come from other living beings. Consciousness comes from consciousness. Intelligence comes from intelligence. 
We live in a day in which modern scientists seem to have lost their marbles. They want us to somehow believe that life came from non-life, that consciousness came from unconsciousness, that intelligence came from unintelligence, even though we have zero evidence for any of that, and we have billions of examples every day of the opposite. Mount Hermon, life came from life. There had to be a first life from which life came, an eternal life, an ultimate life, an absolute life, and that life is God. He is the first and ultimate consciousness. He is the first and ultimate intelligence from which everything else came. Put simply, everything has had a beginning, but there had to be something that had, to, that had no beginning. That thing that had no beginning is God. I am who I am. And so God's name tells us He is the source of everything else. He is the life that has always existed and from which all other life comes. Indeed, all energy and all matter and all everything else in this world has had a beginning. What we have in His name is the answer to the greatest riddle of our existence. Where did this all come from? It came from God. Now, we could say a lot more about God's name and what it says about His nature. I just chose a few highlights. But we're going to move now to our second point this morning, which is God's name is a rebuke to all idolatry. By idolatry, I'm referring to every effort to make God into something He isn't. Idolatry is trying to fashion a God using our own thinking or our own imagination. We are so prone to want to try and make God into what we would prefer Him to be. But what is God's name? I am who I am. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, when I think of God, I like to think of Him as... And they go on and tell you how they conceive of God. But friends, we must adjust our thinking to the true God. We cannot adjust God to our thinking. God is an objective being. He is who He is, like it or not. He is who He is, and that is that. And therefore, we must adjust our worldview to His objective reality. We cannot play games with the character and nature of God. He's not made of Play-Doh that you can shape into any kind of God you want. You don't have the freedom to play buffet with God, choosing to believe in certain characteristics, but choosing to neglect or reject other characteristics of God. God does not exist for your pleasure. God does not exist to meet your expectations. God is who He is. Dear friend, if you are living in disobedience to God, don't think for a moment that you can change Him. Don't think for a moment that your God is not a God of justice just because you don't want Him to be. You might not like to think of God as a God of judgment or a God of wrath, but that doesn't change the fact that He is a God of judgment and He is a God of wrath. Or you might be like Jonah, 
You might be wishing He wasn't so doggone merciful to so many people. You might be wishing He would go ahead and judge some. But He is merciful. He is compassionate. Friends, God does not bow to our whims. We must conform to His standards. He never conforms to ours. Now, by the way, recognize what this means. If God is who He is, then this means that all ideas about God are not equally valid. All ideas about God are not equally valid. Some are right and some are wrong. Since God is an objective being, that means He is who He is, and what some people say He is is right, and what some people say He is is wrong. Don't let anyone tell you that all views of God are equally valid. Don't let anyone tell you that all religions are equally valid. God is not some amorphous being that can take the shape of what a Muslim wants Him to be and what a Mormon wants Him to be and what a Hindu wants Him to be and what a Christian wants Him to be. He is who He is. And we know who He is because He has revealed Himself to us. He has spoken to us about who He is. Back when I was at Campbell University, we were taught the very famous illustration of the blind men and the elephant. Blind men, and they come to this creature, this thing, they don't know what it is. And one blind man feels the elephant's leg. And he says, aha, this, is, this being is like a tree. A second blind man feels the tail and says, aha, this being is like a rope. A third blind man feels the tusk of the elephant and says, aha, this being is like a pipe. The fourth blind man feels the belly and says, aha, this being is like a wall. And so it goes on. And the moral of the story, I was told, was that every religion is like the groping of these blind men. Every religion has part of the truth. Every religion has a part of it right, and it's only when you put all the religions together that you begin to get a true and accurate picture of God. And the implication was that all religions are equally valid. All religions are helpful. That you have to have them all to get the big picture. Kevin DeYoung has pointed out a huge problem with this illustration. The world wants to say, do you see how all these blind men had a part of the truth? The world wants to say the smartest and the wisest people are those who are able to consider all religions as equally valid. But what if the elephant speaks while these blind men are feeling around and says, I'm an elephant. Would we say that those blind men are still wise if they say, it's a tree, it's a wall, it's a tusk? No, we would say they should now know it has spoken. It is an elephant. Friends, God has not remained silent about who he is. We are not blind people groping into some amorphous God trying to figure out who He is. He has spoken. He has revealed Himself. And He's done so in the pages of the Bible. He's done so in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is who He is. And we know who He is. It is not being deep. 
It is not being wise or scholarly to imagine being God whatever we please. It's foolishness. It's rebellion. God has told us who He is and what He is like. Our responsibility is to believe Him. And yet there are so many who cover their eyes and stick their fingers in their ears and refuse to believe in the God of the Bible. They are purposefully blind. They are purposefully deaf because they don't like the God of the Bible because He is holy. And they are guilty. And so the name of God is a statement about idolatry. We cannot make God into anything other than who He is. He is who He is. Number three, our third final truth from the name We've seen that God's name is a testimony to His nature. We've seen that His name is a rebuke to all idolatry. Here's our third point. God's name is a statement about Pharaoh and a statement about Pharaoh's God. Now, why do I say that? Well, remember, this is not the first time in the Bible that God has revealed His name. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the name of God. In Genesis 22, for example, we find God referring to Himself as Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of God. God uses that name of Himself when speaking to Abraham. He does the same thing in Genesis 28 when speaking to Jacob. In Genesis 14 and in Genesis 15, Abraham calls God by His name. Jacob, in Genesis 28, calls God by his name. The patriarchs of Genesis knew the name of God. And something really interesting happens in Egypt during this time of the patriarchs. A story became very popular there. It's known as the story of the heavenly cow. The heavenly cow. Uh, the, The Egyptians thought of their cows much like the Hindus of India do today. Uh, The cattle were considered very sacred. A lot of their gods were pictured as cows. And the story of the heavenly cow is the story of how the chief god of Egypt created the world. Growing up, um, I was told that the chief god of Egypt was called Ra. Most scholars today call him Re, R-E, but it's the same same person. And the story of, of the heavenly cow is the story of how Ra, or Re, created the world. And in that story, Ray says of himself, in Egyptian, I am what I am. In other words, this statement became well known in Egypt because it was a part of their creation story. It was, about, it was a part of their understanding of how the world was made. It was a title used of their own chief God. Ray is the one who says, I am what I am. But where did the Egyptians get this? Well, we have no record of that kind of language being used in Egypt before the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Genesis, we read about Abraham and Sarah coming to Egypt. We read about Sarah being taken into into the house of one of the early pharaohs And we read about the Lord, literally Yahweh, I am who I am, afflicting that Pharaoh with great plagues. 
And in the account of Genesis 12, God is referred to in that narrative by His holy name. In other words, long before we get to Exodus 3, it appears that the Egyptians had heard the name of the Hebrew God. I am who I am. And it appears that they took that name and brought it into their Egyptian mythology and applied it to their chief god, Ray. How popular was this story of the heavenly cow, which calls Ray, I am what I am? It was very popular. We have it written on the walls of at least three royal tombs from Egypt's 19th dynasty. If you were to visit the Valley of Kings in Egypt and if you were to get permission to see the tombs of the pharaohs, you would find this story in several of those tombs. Uh, King Tut has, everybody knows King Tut, right? King Tut has this story in his tomb. Uh, One of the most other famous pharaohs, Seti I, had the complete story of the heavenly cow with that title, I am what I am, being spoken by Ray on his tomb. But get this. In the story of the heavenly cow, not only does the god Ray say, I am what I am, but he gives that name to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is called in that story in Egyptian, the I am what I am. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the human incarnation of Ray. Pharaoh is the human incarnation of the supreme God. He is the I am what I am. And so the name of the true God was hijacked by the Egyptians and they're now using it as a title for Pharaoh. At the same time, the people of Israel lost that name for their God. They don't seem to remember it by the days of Moses. Why? Likely because they didn't speak it. Right? This was a name that was considered too holy to be uttered by human lips. That's why we're not even sure how to pronounce it. Right? People used to say Jehovah, now we say Yahweh. There are no vowels in ancient Hebrew and people didn't speak the name of God. We don't even really know how to pronounce it. It was common for the Israelites to use other names for God. Names like El or Adonai or Elohim. Even today... We don't typically use the name of God. We we don't walk around saying, let me tell you what Yahweh is doing in my life. We say, let me tell you what God. We use the title, God, rather than His name. For some reason, probably a good one, we, we use His name sparingly. Well, that happened in ancient Israel to the point that Egypt, that the Israelites had practically lost the name of God. And so you can see why this is amazingly significant, that now this name is being re-revealed. You can see how this name meant something to Moses and to Israel and also to the Egyptians. When Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, I am has sent me to you, it was a slap in the face of Pharaoh. It was God saying to Pharaoh, you're not God. You're not the I am You have taken for yourself what belongs to me, the glory of being God. More than that, this name is a direct claim that Israel's God is the true God and Egypt's God is a fraud. Make no mistake, church, everything we're going to see in the next few chapters with all of these plagues of locusts and flies and gnats and frogs, all of these things that we're going to see, 
They are going to be God showing in one plague after another that the gods of the Egyptians are frauds and that He is the true God. That's also what this name is. It is God saying, I am the true God and you Egyptian gods are not true gods. What would it mean for the people of Israel and Egypt when Moses came to them and said that the God of their fathers has sent him and that God's name is Yahweh? What would it mean for them that it is their God and not Egypt's God who is true and supreme? It would mean that they were safe and secure. Do not fear the Egyptians and what the Egyptians can do to you. Trust your God. Through Moses, God is calling the people of Israel back to Himself. They've been in Egypt 400 years. Surely they had begun to fall into Egyptian religious practices. We're going to see them. Why do they make a golden calf at Mount Sinai? They had learned this from the peoples around them. Now the true God is speaking to His people saying, Trust Me. Come back to Me. Don't give honor to the gods of Egypt. I am the true God. And so this name revealed something about God's nature. It was a rebuke to all idolatry. And it was a rebuke of the Egyptian god Ray and Pharaoh. Mount Hermon, Yahweh also goes by another name, doesn't he? He also goes by the name Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't just saying that he had always existed. Jesus is claiming what we've seen in past weeks. Jesus came to earth as a man and said, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. Jesus is the God with whom we all must deal. Wonder of wonders. He loved us so much that he became a man and went to the cross for sinners. Wonder of wonders that the God who is most glorious and most worthy of our love would humble Himself to save us. It was the I Am that went to the cross and died. So let us love, let us worship, let us trust this God whose name is Yahweh, whose name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.